Well, to begin our message today, uh, I want to ask you, what word would you use to sum up everything about what it means to follow Jesus? Nice, simple question for you. So if you had to just pick one word and one word only to sum up what it means to follow Jesus, what word would you use? And uh, we are going to do this interactively. So do you people want to call out a word that comes to mind when you think about everything about what it means to follow Jesus? Love, very nice. Worship, very good. Everything, nice. Surrender, good. Grace, what was the other one? Discipleship, I like that. <laughs> no surprise to most of you. One more. Hope, and there was another one. Hard, very good, excellent. Love it. I had a couple of other words, so purpose, caring, holistic, peace. However, Jacob nailed what our focus is going to be today, which is love. Not that there are any right answers. All of those answers are correct and great answers. Uh, But today our focus is going to be on this word love and to explore a little bit of the reality that that word does sum up a lot Jesus tells us about what it means to be able to follow him. Uh, We are continuing our kickoff series. We're spending a couple of weeks just talking about some of the things that we're going to focus on as we move into this year and want to prioritize uh, as we move into this year. And so if you weren't around last week, particularly if you are a part of our Richmond family and you didn't get to hear a message last week, I would encourage you to have a watch or a listen of it. So uh, all of our gatherings are streamed on YouTube and then they're available during the week and you can also access our podcast wherever your favorite podcast is available from. Uh, I will admit that last week if you listened to our podcast on Sunday afternoon or Monday you would have heard our Christmas message which confused a couple of people who were like this seems very very strange Uh, and that's because I was very out of practice of uploading our podcast and forgot one key step which is to upload the correct week's audio. So Hopefully that'll be, that was fixed on Monday afternoon, but uh, moving forward from Sunday afternoons, you should be able to access that as well. And uh, so would encourage you, uh, if you're a part of our Richmond family, to go back and have a listen to that or to watch that if you weren't here last week, because it does set up a lot of what we're going to be focusing on as we move into this year. And in particular, there was some language uh, that I mentioned has been really helpful for me as I've gotten into the year, which is this, living and loving the way of Jesus wherever we are. Living and loving the way of Jesus wherever we are. And I said last week that I think there are some very helpful hooks for us in that fairly simple statement. So last week we spent some time talking about what it looks like to live the way of Jesus, to recognize that our focus is on practicing the way of Jesus, embracing the way of Jesus and actually living the way of Jesus, not just learning about the way of Jesus. Today we're going to focus on the second part of that, what it means to love the way of Jesus. And there's a couple of parts that we're going to look at with that. The first is to say that love is a defining characteristic of what it means to live the way of Jesus. But also to explore what it means for us to say, I love living the way of Jesus. I'm excited about and passionate about living the way of Jesus. And then the third part of that statement, wherever we are, is very crucial for us, especially this year. So most of you who are part of our regular Richmond family are aware that this building uh, is being acquired as a part of the South Road redevelopment. And so at the end of this year, we're not going to be here. And as we stand here today, we don't know where we are going to be. So wherever we are, 
our focus is going to be on living and loving the way of Jesus. But also, wherever we are in our spiritual journeys, so whether we're just starting to ask spiritual questions, whether we've just discovered Jesus and we're exploring who this Jesus guy is and what's at the core of Jesus' teaching, or whether we've been following Jesus for years or for decades, there is always more for us to live and love about the way of Jesus. So wherever we are in our spiritual journeys, and then also wherever we are, as in wherever we are throughout the week. So yes, when we're together, we want to spend time focusing on what it means to live and love the way of Jesus, whether that's on Sundays or in our gospel groups or our youth group, uh, or when our minis get together, but also whatever we're doing during the week. So when we're spending time with our neighbours, with our friends, with our extended families, at work, at school, at uni, pursuing our passions, wherever we are, we want to focus on what it means to live and love the way of Jesus. And so last week as we explored what it means to live the way of Jesus, we reflected on this question, who am I becoming as we move into this year? As we move into 2024, if I continue on the trajectory that I'm on, then who am I becoming and who are we becoming as a church family? And as we unpack that, one of my challenges for us is to not just settle for good enough as we move into this year. To not just get to a place where we say, well, things are good, it's fine, everything's okay, but to really stretch ourselves and to have this sense of expectation that God is stirring something up in us as we focus on living and loving the way of Jesus. And there is so much more for us. And so we want to pursue that and be excited about that. We had a CLT, church leadership team meeting, uh, our board on Wednesday night. And uh, as a part of that, I asked them to bring three words that they would use to talk about this year. And one of the things that I was super encouraged about is that the vast majority of those words, even with all the uncertainty that we've got ahead of us, were words like hope and anticipation. One of my favorites was intrigue. There was a lot of a sense of like, well, I'm not sure at all where this is going and I'm not exactly sure what God's up to, but there's something. There is something going on. And I'm really, really excited that that's kind of our default mindset as we head into this year. And I want to encourage you to be excited about that as well. So this week, we're going to explore what it means to love the way of Jesus. And so if you've got the Bible app on your phone, uh, you can open that up and uh, head down to the bottom right corner where it says more and then tap on events and uh, you'll see Richmond Baptist there and uh, our teaching outline is there. And we encourage you to jot some things down that are helpful for you that you want to take into this week to be able to keep thinking about and to have some more conversations about whether that's informal groups or informal groups. Uh, And if you've just got a paper Bible with you, that's excellent as well, you can open up to Matthew chapter 22, because that's where we're going to go in a couple of minutes. So the passage that we're looking at today is another one that is very familiar to us. Last week we talked about the Great Commission, Matthew 28, and a lot of, peop- a lot of us have uh, focused on that a lot over the years. Uh, this one is called uh, the Great Commandment, and also is something that would be very familiar to us. Uh, It's a passage that I come back to as one of the core passages about what I believe it is to follow Jesus. And uh, if you have been paying attention, you would know I have spoken on this before. I'm not going to hold you to remembering what I talked about when I have done that before. Uh, But one of the things that I love about Jesus' teaching is that there is always something new to discover. Even in the same things that we've read and heard people talk about many, many times. And in particular, I think one of the key questions that we should have every time we approach a passage of Scripture, but maybe especially when it's one that's familiar, 
is, what does this look like for me today? Regardless of how many times I've heard someone talk about this, regardless of how many times I've read it, and particularly as we move into 2024 and as things start to shift and move in our lives, there are lots of things that end up being in a different place than they were the last time that we read or heard a set of verses. And so I want to encourage you to lean in and to ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to me today and what does that look like for me to live that out? So the context for this passage is that the religious leaders have been trying to trap and trick Jesus into saying something very controversial so that they could either discredit or get rid of him altogether. But Jesus just keeps nailing his responses and the crowd keeps getting more and more blown away about how wise and amazing Jesus is. And Jesus is also beginning to show that he is operating with a sense of God's authority, that he is who he says he is as the Son of God, and that he may well be this Messiah, the Saviour, the Rescuer that the people of Israel have been waiting on for centuries to come and make them fully right with God once and for all and to establish God's kingdom. It's been a bunch of things going on where people are like, maybe Jesus is actually the Messiah. But the religious leaders are very sceptical about this because Jesus doesn't in any way fit their picture of what the Messiah was supposed to be like. And so they're really struggling with who this guy is and the things that he's saying. And in particular, we're told over and over again that there are these two different groups of religious leaders. So there's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And both of those groups believed in following the Old Testament laws religiously to the the letter. Got to do exactly what it says there. But the Sadducees focused only on what's written down. So the things that are in the law of Moses, what we've got in the Old Testament, that's it. And anything that's outside of that is completely irrelevant. The Pharisees, on the other hand, also embraced what was known as the oral law or oral tradition. So these things that have been processed, other practices or beliefs that were expansions on the written law. Because what happened over time is that people had questions about the written law and said, yeah, but how does this work in this context? How does this work in this context? Or this isn't a part of the written law. And so what are we supposed to do about that? And so a really great example is the resurrection. So for the Sadducees, they would say there is no resurrection because there's nothing in the written law about resurrection and life after death, so it doesn't exist. It isn't a thing. Whereas the Pharisees, as they process things over generations, had gotten to a point where they were like, no, no, there needs to be life after death. There needs to be a resurrection. And so that would be a great example where they disagreed, even though they're coming from the same place. So the Sadducees have been asking Jesus these very, very pointed questions that came out of specific laws. But Jesus managed to address them so profoundly that they were kind of like, well, we're out of ideas here. And so the Pharisees now step up to the plate. And so that's where we pick things up in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. When the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? So this is a pretty powerful and helpful question to wrestle with. Jesus, what is the most important thing for us to do? What's the most important thing that we have to get right no matter what? And we've mentioned before that there were over 600, or there are over 600 laws in the Old Testament, which is a lot of stuff to try and remember. All the things you're allowed to do and all the things that you're not allowed to do, trying to get all of that right. So this guy says, out of all of them, Jesus, what is the most important one? 
And Jesus replies with these words that may be familiar to a lot of us, starting in verse 37. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. This is what I love so much about Jesus. He's able to say these things that are so staggeringly simple and yet so staggeringly profound. This is a very simple statement. You want to know what you need to do? It's really simple. Love God and love people. If you do that, everything else will take care of itself. St. Augustine is quoted as writing in the 4th century, this statement that's somewhat controversial, love God and do as you please. Love God and do as you please. If we get this part right, everything else will fall into place. But then you stop and you think about this a little bit and you realize, hold on, (laughs) there's a lot going on here. Love God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind. Loving God with all of our heart means loving God with all of our motives, all of our desires, and all of our yearnings. Loving God with all of our soul means loving God with all of our spirituality, all of our quest for purpose, all of our quest to connect with something that's bigger than ourselves. And loving God with all of our mind means loving God with all of our thoughts, all of our attitudes, all of our perspectives. So, are all of those things love-centered in my life? Is all of those things motivated and inspired and informed by love? Or are some of those things maybe motivated by other things, whether that's guilt or a desire to prove myself or worrying about what other people might think of me? What are at the core of my motivations? Jesus says earlier in Matthew that our motivations and our internals actually matter as much as the things that we do. That if we hate someone that's on the same level, as murdering someone. If we lust after someone, that's the same as us acting out on it. And so Jesus is very clear that love is not just an action, but it's actually a motivation. It's not just what we do, but it's why we do the things that we do. And I don't know about you, but this is where things can kind of start to go a little bit sideways for me. That's a lot of stuff, God, for me to try and get right. All of my motivations, all of my thoughts, all of my desires, all love-centered. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can love you with every part of who I am. And the bigger question is, what happens if I don't? Or probably more accurately, what happens when I don't? Because there is no chance that I'm going to get all of that stuff right. I want to love God with every part of who I am. But I know that I'm not going to get that right 100% of the time. And so then what? And this is why starting points are so important in our spiritual journeys. Do we start with it's my responsibility to love God? And if I do, then God might love me in return. Or do we start the other way? God loves me completely. And so I respond by loving God. It is a really, really crucial difference because one of them leads to a lifetime of questioning, have I done enough? We spend our whole lives just searching and questioning, have I done enough to show God that I love him? 
And in those moments, when I get it wrong, what are the things that I have to do to make up for it and to try and sort it out? The other starting point leads us to freedom. And I loved all the songs that the team sang this morning because it summed up everything about what this looks like. A place where we recognize we are loved. We are accepted. We are embraced as we are right now in this moment. No matter what's going on in our lives, God loves us to the core of who we are. And so now we can choose to love God in return, knowing that we'll never match God's love, but that's okay because we don't have to. And then Jesus reminds us that this also leads us outwards as well. Jesus pairs loving God with loving people and says they're actually of equal importance, of equal weighting. Realistically, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. If we embrace God's invitation to receive his love, and if we allow ourselves to be transformed in an ongoing way by that love, then it will almost automatically lead us to wanting to love others. Why wouldn't we want to love other people if we know that we are loved and our heart and our soul and our mind are all being shaped by God's love? Why would we not want to then love other people? But once again, starting points matter, and I know that I've defaulted on the dark side of this over and over and over again in my life. I think for many of us, we start in this place. I'm supposed to love other people. Jesus said that. It's pretty clear. It's black and white. This is what I'm supposed to do. But that's really hard because people are people, and some people are hard to love. Especially, and I guarantee you that every single one of us has a name or a face that comes to mind when we think about people who are hard to love. But I am supposed to do it. This is what Jesus told me that I am supposed to do. And if I don't, then maybe that means that God won't love me. Or maybe it means at least that God won't like me. And so we go in this massive spiral where we feel guilty about the fact that it's hard to love people all of the time. And so we feel guilty about that, which actually makes it even harder for us to love other people, which makes us even more guilty. And God somehow seems to get further and further away in all of this. But what if our starting point was the other way? I'm loved. I am embraced. I am accepted as I am. God knows me and God loves me to the core. And so now, not only am I freed up to be able to love God, even though I'm going to do that imperfectly, but I'm also freed up to love other people. Not because I have to, but because I want to. Because of an overflow of what's happening inside of me. And am I going to do that perfectly? Of course I'm not. But when I mess up, my response is not to go on a massive guilt spiral, but rather to find ways to return back to God's love and acceptance and be able to work my way back out from there. But there's one more piece that Jesus shares in the midst of this that also shows just how profound this simple statement is because he doesn't just say love God and love people as we so often summarize this. He actually says love God with every part of who you are and love your neighbor as you love yourself. This also has two elements to it. For some of us, loving other people the way that we love ourselves means treating other people the way that we want to be treated. 
We know how it feels when we're loved and when we're embraced by someone else, how much of a difference it makes to how we feel and to how we carry ourselves. And so what we would love other people to do for us, we then choose to do for other people. And sometimes, for some of us, if we're honest, we can love and focus on ourselves a little bit more than we focus on other people. And so the challenge here for us is to ask ourselves, do I focus on other people as much as I focus on myself? Do I look out for other people the way that I want to be looked out for? Do I treat other people the way I want them to treat me? Do I speak to other people the way that I want people to speak to me? However, and I suspect that there are a decent number of us who are in this space, it's also profoundly powerful because Jesus is saying you wouldn't dare treat other people the way that you sometimes treat yourself. You wouldn't dare talk to other people the way that you sometimes talk to yourself. You wouldn't dare ream other people out the way that you ream yourself out. That damaging self-talk that we know is so toxic and can crush us and create significant darkness in parts of our heart and our soul and our mind. We would never dare to speak to other people in that way, the way that we sometimes speak to and about ourselves. So... Why do we do that to ourselves? Because Jesus' challenge to us is to love other people the way that we love ourselves or to love ourselves the way that we love other people. Love God, love people, love yourself. Not so that we can earn anything, but rather out of an overflow of God's love for us. This is part of what we spent some time reflecting on last week and a big part of what we're going to focus on as we move into our series starting next week where we're going to focus on prayer. When we're struggling, our starting point is not actually to try and work harder, to try and do more, to try and step up, to push harder. A lot of the time, the best thing for us to do is actually to stop and to be, to pause to still ourselves, to receive, to reflect on why it is that we're striving and pushing and working so hard. What are we hoping is on the other end of that? Is it possible that what we're hoping that we can work so hard to earn has actually already been given to us? It's already right there in front of us. As we're going to explore in the series, so much of prayer is actually about just putting ourselves in a place to recognize what is true and to stop all the noise that's in our heads and all around us. Jesus tells us ultimately that love is one of the key defining markers of being a community of people that follow him. In John chapter 13, some words that are also probably familiar to a lot of us. Jesus says, Let me give you a new command. Love one another. In the same way I loved you, you love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you're my disciples, when they see the love that you have for each other. How can people tell that we are a group who are apprenticed to Jesus, wanting to live the way of Jesus? Quite simply, by the way that we love each other, by the way that we talk to each other, the way that we talk about each other, the way that we treat each other, the way that we care about each other. But once again, what is the starting point that Jesus makes quite clear here? In the same way that Jesus has loved us, love other people. As we embrace what it means to live the way of Jesus, 
It's amazing that our trajectory then becomes about embracing what it means to love the way of Jesus. And coming back to that question from last week about who we are becoming, to recognize that as we embrace living the way of Jesus, we're becoming people who become more love-centered. Because at the end of the day, that's what God is all about and what God wants to pour into us. But I think there is also one final element for us to talk about as we think about this idea of living and loving the way of Jesus wherever we are. And the question I've been thinking about a bit this week is what would it look like if we spent this year continually coming back to this question of motivations? In those moments where we feel overwhelmed, where we feel frustrated, where we feel guilty, like we're not enough, like we're not doing enough, what instead of us trying harder and redoubling our efforts and feeling like it's all on us to sort things out, we simply stopped. And we spent some time reflecting, asking ourselves, why am I responding the way that I am to this situation that's in front of me? And then taking the time to simply pause and be with Jesus, to reconnect, to recalibrate, to recommit ourselves to living this way, not because we have to, but because we know it's ultimately who we want to become. I wonder what would happen to our passion levels if we chose to focus on that throughout this year and if we encouraged and inspired each other to do that as well. I wonder what would happen to our emotional temperature. And I wonder if we might more ably be able to say, I am loving the way of Jesus. Rather than feeling like, I know this is what I should be doing and I've got to get this sorted out. And this is the year where I better try and get it right because I've been trying hard enough and it's time to get myself together. Can we get to a place where we put ourselves before Jesus and discover that we're actually in a place where we say, I've never felt this level of freedom before. I've never felt a sense of peace like I'm feeling. I've never encountered a deep sense of joy like this. I am loving the way of Jesus. As a way of being able to continue to reflect and to respond to what this all looks like, we're going to take some time to gather around the communion table. And that's a very deliberate decision because once again, this is another staggering example of how amazing Jesus is. His ability to be able to take something that is so simple, bread and juice, and be able to give us something that is so staggeringly profound. We have these elements, bread, that reminds us of Jesus' body, that Jesus ultimately came to earth to show us what love looks like with skin on, to show us what it looks like to live a life of love. Jesus comes in human form. The bread reminds us that Jesus came to be one of us and to be amongst us. The juice reminds us that Jesus' blood was poured out as a final sacrifice for us so that it is no longer about what we have to do. Jesus' declaration that it is finished meant what he said. It is finished. It's complete. It's done. And so the juice reminds us that Jesus' sacrifice means it's not about us trying to measure up and hoping that we can somehow get there. And so being able to take these elements of bread and juice is an opportunity for us to remember that we are loved. 
If you're wondering this morning, how much does God actually love me? This is the answer. Enough for Jesus to give his life for you. And so the bread and the juice give us an opportunity to do what Jesus told his closest followers. The night before he died, he got together with them and he said, whenever you get together, take bread and take wine and take some time to remember, to remember me. And so we pause to be able to remember, to reflect, to recognize this is how much we are loved. And as we do that, we have the opportunity then to be inspired, to be people who are inspired to love God, to be people who are inspired to love others, even to love others sacrificially the way that Jesus has loved us, and to remind ourselves of what it means to love ourselves in healthy ways. But there's something beautifully symbolic about what we do as we take the bread and the juice because we take it inside of ourselves. And we're effectively saying as we take communion, this is my opportunity to say, Jesus, I want more of you in my life. I want more of your love in my life. I want more of you fueling me to be able to live this out. And so in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come forward. You can take a piece of bread or a cracker and a cup of juice and head back to your seats. And I'd encourage you to take some time to be able to reflect as you're holding the elements in your hand on just how much you are loved. And when you're ready, eat the bread as a symbolic way of being able to say, Jesus, I receive your love in my life. I want more of you in my life. But then hold on to the cup and we're going to drink that together, symbolically recognizing this is not just what's been done for us individually, but this is what ties us together as family as well. Everyone is welcome to join and to participate in communion today. You don't have to just be a member of Richmond. Anyone is welcome to be able to come at Jesus' invitation to be able to receive what he's offering this morning. Let's pray. King Jesus, we are in awe of you. It is staggering that you are able to say things that at first glance are so, so simple. And yet when we dig into them, we realize this is what the entirety of our lives is spent discovering and rediscovering and rediscovering. We thank you that there is no end to your incredible, infinite love demonstrated to us through your life, your death, and your resurrection. And that we can spend all of our lives continuing to be amazed at what you have done for us. For some of us this morning, that's our opportunity to just be able to pause and to be refilled again with this reminder that you love us as we are right now, even with all of our brokenness, even with all of our mistakes, even with all the things that we don't get right, we are loved. But thank you that you desire to pour this into us so that there is a response where we have the opportunity to be able to love you back and to be able to do that with every part of who we are, not just to try and get our externals and our actions right, but to the core and the essence of who we are, to our motivations and our thoughts, to be able to surrender them to you so that we can live love-centered lives. And then in a natural outflow of that, to love the people around us, even the people who are hard to love, to be able to do that, not because we have to, but because we get to. Not because we're hoping we can earn something, but as a response of what has already been given to us. 
And so as we take this time now, we thank you that you are here with us, that you're present here with us. We ask that you would speak to us, speak to the depths of who we are, and that you would fuel us and inspire us about what it means to be people who are living and loving your way. In your name we pray. Amen.